welcome to Under the Fig Tree. I'm Troy, and I will be flying solo in this episode. First time, first time. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Before I get started, there's a couple things I did want to cover. I do want to send a shout out to our good friends in Daniels, West Virginia, Phil and Candace Farrington. They are listeners in that Daniels, West Virginia area. Not too long ago, my wife and I had an opportunity to go and minister uh, at their church, and they treated us so kindly. Uh, They were so hospitable, and I I really did appreciate all that they did for us and the opportunity to minister to the people there. There's also Steve Ratliff. Uh, So hello there, Steve, and Steve Morgan up in Daniels, West Virginia, and we do appreciate your listenership. We also appreciate the kindness and the hospitality that you showed to us while we were able to visit with you. And we are really looking forward to seeing you guys very soon. I also want to send a shout out to our good friend, Hosanna Farwell. From my understanding, she picks up quite a bit from our podcast. Some nuggets that we drop here and there, she's able to pick those up and apply them to her life. So Hosanna, we hope you are well and we pray God's blessing over you. Thank you for your listenership. Uh, today, I just wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about some observations and maybe just dig into the word just a little bit. Uh, I was at a men's breakfast not too long ago. And for some of you folks who know, you know, men's ministry is a, a big part of our ministry. It's not our total ministry, but it is a big part. Uh, we believe that if you win the man, you win the house. And so we go aggressively after the men and trying to get the hearts turned towards God so that they can lead their families in the way that God intended. And I was at one of the men's breakfasts. It was so interesting because at the breakfast, uh, the room was very diverse. And when we talk diversity, we're not just talking about color. We're talking about age. We're talking about backgrounds, uh, walks of life, all this kind of stuff. Uh, And it was so much fun spending time with that group. Uh, Our main group is in Charlotte. Uh, but we also have other groups that have branched off of that. In fact, uh, there's six different groups, uh, and we're running in six different cities. Uh, and and it's a it's a good time. It's it's where a place where men can come together, and we can have really meaningful conversations, and where men can get true help from other men of God that hear from God, and that can share God's God's heart uh, with other men. So that they can, number one, be validated, not by what we say, but what God's already said about them. And that we can mobilize men to go out into the communities and uh, do the work after, because we always say this, after the work is done in their home. So you get your, your stuff together at home first, and then you go out into the community and make a difference in the community. But at this breakfast, we had some older guys there. And we also had some high school guys there, uh, some guys that were just coming into high school. And I absolutely loved the fact that those young men were there. And uh, we were at some point we were going around the room and, you know, these, these young men had just been born again. And I think uh, during the conversation, some folks were telling them, Hey, you know, as a believer in high school, you know, it's, it can be tough. And there's temptations and, 
you know, the enemy will do this and the enemy will do that. He'll bring this and he'll bring that. And going around the room, it was almost like everybody just kind of tell them what the enemy would plan to do to dissuade them uh, from walking with Christ. Now, while all of that is true, I did want to offer those young men a different perspective. And the perspective I wanted to offer them was not what the enemy is doing, but what God has already said he would do for us. So he said, the name of the Lord is a strong tower where the righteous can run in and they are safe. And I wanted to make sure these young men understood that the focus should not be on what the enemy is doing. The focus should be on who God is. And as you become to learn who God is, you learn more about who you actually are. Now, we're not supposed to be ignorant of our enemy's devices. Uh, Paul teaches us that, that we're not ignorant of his devices, but he never told us to focus on his devices. He never told us to focus on what the enemy is doing. And it's not just in that breakfast that I heard this, but it's in different places that we go. The enemy is doing this. The enemy is doing that. The enemy is doing this. And I have a question that came out of that. Why is it that we know so much about what the enemy is doing, but we can't discern what God is doing here in the earth? That seems backwards to me. That we can see everything that the enemy is doing, but we can't discern what God is doing here in the earth. And that has to change. And the only way that changes is your mind has to change. Your focus and your gaze has to change. And you can't consistently peer out and, and point out what the enemy is doing. And he's doing this and he's doing that and he'll do this and he'll do that without understanding that we have a God that fights for us. He's in us. He's for us. He's with us. He fights for us. He protects us. You have been sealed. You have been marked for protection. And I think we need to focus more on that. I think if we get back to focusing on what God is doing here in the earth, the enemy is going to do what he does anyway, whether we focus on it or not. But I really do believe that as the believers mature, it's less and less about what the enemy is doing. And it's way more about what God is doing here in the earth. And I just wanted to share that with you. Hopefully that is some motivation to you. Um, and hopefully that does help someone who may be struggling with that. God is doing some absolutely marvelous and wonderful things here in the earth. And if you continue to look at social media and you continue to look at the news and especially when you have conversations with people, it seems like everything is falling apart and everything is, is going downhill, but God is doing some wonderful things here in the earth. And I think it's about time that we focus more on discerning what it is that God is doing and less on what the enemy is trying to do. So wanted to share that with you and hopefully that does motivate. Hopefully that does help someone change their perspective and hopefully it helps you uh, walk closer with the Lord. I have had the opportunity over the last few weeks in two different classes that I've been teaching, two different classes I've been teaching. I've, I've had the 
opportunity to help some people to dig deeper into God's word. A class that I have put together takes us about 17 weeks. I've taught it one other time in the full 17 weeks. And I'm teaching it now to two separate classes. And it's on how to study the Bible. Now, I know this can be a little touchy. It can cause some valid debates. Uh, because once it gets down to it, we're like, okay, everybody's going to have their own interpretation, this kind of stuff. Well, I try to do some things in this class to show people it's not really how you interpret it. In fact, I teach the, the people attending our class that we don't interpret scripture. If you study it out, the scripture will interpret itself. And I know that's a difficult thing for some to grasp but honestly, if you study it out long enough, if you meditate on it long enough, the scripture will interpret itself. Uh, it doesn't really need our help for interpretation. But there are some tools. Uh, There's some techniques. And uh, the first part of the class that we do is just focusing on some of the principles that are uh, biblical in nature that help us to look at the Bible in context. And I did want to give one or two of those principles during this session because I felt led to share some of this. And one of the principles that I do want to share with you, it is the typical principle. Now, the typical principle is based on how God reveals truth in this Bible that we read, he reveals truth by using illustrations that we call types or we might call shadows. So you're like, okay, what does that mean? Well, if you think about it, a shadow, if you look at your shadow outside and you look on the ground, you see the shadow, the shadow is not you. I can look at that shadow and tell, uh, say for instance, if Bruce was standing outside I could look at the shadow and say, hey, that kind of looks like Bruce, but I know the shadow is not Bruce. Bruce is Bruce, but the shadow is not Bruce. It looks like Bruce. You can almost make it out, and you can, in, in certain angles, you can definitely tell, okay, that definitely is Bruce if you look at it from the right angle. And this is how the Old Testament is told. It's told in, in shadows and in types. And what do I mean by that? That there are types of Christ, there are types of sin, there are types of the church, there are even types of the Antichrist, there are types of the flesh in the Bible. The Old Testament is told in types and shadows. The Old Testament is very relevant today, but where the Old Testament is told with the types and shadows in the picture forms, what it does, it reveals a spiritual reality to us today. Now I can share with you and I'm going to share with you a couple of types. And there are some really, really good ones in the uh, old Testament, tons of them. And you have to remember the entire Bible is about Christ. The entire Bible is about Jesus. There are three keys that I always give people to understand the old Testament. If you can look at these three keys, you'll understand the Old Testament a whole lot better. Number one, 
Look for Jesus. Like Jesus in the Old Testament? Yes, look for Jesus in the Old Testament because he's there. Look for Jesus in the Old Testament. Number two, look for the plan of redemption. The plan of redemption is laid out in the Old Testament. We see the reality of that in the New Testament. And then you also look for the covenant. If you find those three things, then you'll understand the Old Testament a whole lot better. One of my favorite types in the Old Testament is Moses. Moses is really a good, clear type of Christ in the Old Testament. Now, we're not saying that Moses is Christ, but what Moses' life, it foreshadows who Christ is. Moses was a deliverer, and so was Jesus. Uh, When Moses was born, there was a decree to kill all the children under a certain age. Same thing happened with Jesus. Moses was an intercessor. Jesus is our great intercessor. And Moses worked miracles, and so did Jesus. You see Moses' life as a shadow of which Christ is the, the ultimate reality of that shadow. And we, we see it over and over and over again. Moses is a great picture. Moses was told after the people had crossed the Red Sea, Moses was told to, to make war with the Amalekites. And if you understand who the Amalekites are, the Amalekites were a tribe of people, uh, very cowardly in their approach. But when Israel came out of Egypt, they would attack Israel from the rear where the weak, where the slow people were, you know, uh, the older people, that kind of thing. And Amalek, if we know who Amalek is, he is the grandson of Esau. And Esau is the son who traded his birthright for something that would appease his flesh. And so Amalek represents the flesh. Really, he does represent the flesh. And so Moses is told it's time to make war with Amalek. So he sends Joshua out. He says, Joshua, you go make war with Amalek. I'm going to go stand on this rock. Moses stands on the rock. And the Bible tells us he had the rod of God in his hand. And when he lifted up his arms, then Israel, who a lot of times in the Old Testament is a picture of the people of God or the church, Israel would prevail over Amalek. And when his arms went down, then Amalek would prevail over Israel. So if we tie all these shadows together and we talk in typical talk, then we could say it this way, that when Moses held his arms up, the people of God would prevail over the flesh. And when Moses' arms went down, the flesh would prevail over the people of God. Now, this is a picture of intercession that Moses is doing. Like I said, Jesus is our great intercessor. Uh, eventually, Moses' arms got tired. And when Moses first went up to the, to the top of the hill, Moses took Aaron and Hur with him. And the Bible tells us that one stood on one side and the other one on the other. So you had Moses in the middle. You had Aaron on one side. And then you had Hur on the other side. Now, Moses' arms begin to get tired. And the reason his arms got tired is because the posture of prayer of the Hebrews at that time was not like we do when you put your hands together and you bow your head. Their posture of prayer was with their arms stretched out wide. So now if you see 
the shadow here, you see the, the, the type here, then you can see a man standing on a hill. His arms are stretched wide, and one man is on one side of him, and another man is on the other. If you flash forward a couple of thousand years, now we see Christ on a hilltop with his arms stretched wide, and there's a man on one side of him. There was one thief, and then there was a man on the other side of him was the second thief. What Christ was doing was interceding for us so that we could prevail over the flesh. This is kind of how the types work. Another good type that we see uh, in the Old Testament. I want to say this is in Genesis 34. If I'm not mistaken, I think it's in Genesis 34. If it's not, we'll find a reference for you. But there's a story where Abraham sends out his servant to find a bride for Isaac. Now, Isaac doesn't go looking for his own bride, but a servant goes to find the bride for Isaac and bring the bride back to Isaac. Isaac is home with his father, and the father was the one who sent out the servant. Now, when we look at this, we can see that Abraham represents God the father in this story. Isaac represents the son in this story, but the servant represents Holy Spirit. So Jesus goes away and he sends a comforter here. And this comforter, part of his job, and I love this because there's no loopholes, there's no threads untied in scripture. Part of his job is to lead and guide us into all truth, but another part of his draw, job is to draw the unbeliever. The Bible says this, that no man comes to God unless the spirit draws him. And so the father sent the servant out to find a bride for the bridegroom. And what you see here is that servant represents Holy Spirit because he's making a call here in the earth to anyone that would answer that call. They would become part of the bridegroom or part of the bride for the bridegroom. I hope that makes sense to everyone. So all this is told in types and shadows. There's other types in the Old Testament. You have types of sin, like uh, uh, leprosy was a type of sin. When you look at leprosy in its nature, it, it would completely corrode the body until there was nothing left, and then you would die. But the interesting thing about leprosy is what showed up on the outside of your body was only a manifestation of what already happened inside. And this is kind of how sin works. Sin works on the inside first. Then the manifestation of that is seen on the outside. So we see that with leprosy in the Old Testament. It is a picture of sin in the Old Testament. You have uh, pictures of the Antichrist in, in 1 Samuel 17. There is a man from Gath named Goliath. And Goliath, the Bible tells us he's six cubits and a span and it talks about his uh, the spearhead on his spear weighed 600 shekels of iron. And then it talked to us about six different pieces of armor that he wore. Well, when you look at those, there's three sixes there. There's the six cubits in the span, 600 shekels of iron. And then you also have the six different types of armor, pieces of armor that he wore. So you have... The six, the six, the six, 
it is a picture or it is a is the mark of the beast. It is a Goliath is a picture of the Antichrist. He stands and he defies the armies of the living God. And this is what the Antichrist will do. Goliath shows us this. And it's what's interesting is where he shows it to us is in the Valley of Eli, where you have Israel on one hilltop, you have the Philistines on another hilltop, and there's a valley in between them. Well, there's a picture of Armageddon in the end where the armies of God are on one hilltop, and you have the armies of the Antichrist on another hilltop, and there's a valley in between them. So there you go. You have another picture there. Incidentally, when you look at the armor of Goliath, Goliath, his armor is numbered with six. There's six different items. He's got a helmet. He's got the coat of mail, which is basically the breastplate that you would wear. Uh, he's got the greaves on his legs. But when you look at his armor, it coincides with the same armor that we have laid out in Ephesians. When it tells us to put on the full armor of God, put on the full armor of God, the helmet of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, and all this kind of stuff, you know, and you have your shield of faith. Goliath had a shield, and then there was a sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. He has all of these items except for one. Our armor comes with seven items. Goliath's comes with six. Seven is a complete number. Six is a number for man and man's incompletion. Goliath's armor numbers in six. Ours numbers in seven. If you look closely, there's one piece of armor that Goliath is missing that we have. And it's the one piece that we have that holds the whole armor together. The Bible tells us about a belt of truth. And if you understand about the Romans and how their armor worked, everything was tied together at the belt is what held everything together. Goliath's armor didn't have a belt. What am I trying to tell you? When the enemy comes at you with all these accusations and all these threats and all this stuff that he comes at you with, you have to remember something. There is no truth to what he's saying. He has no truth. And so everything falls apart. His entire armor falls apart because there's no truth to him. You can walk in freedom because you have a belt of truth. And it's the truth that you know that makes you free. The only way he can hold you in bondage is if you ignore truth. Once you ignore truth, you open yourself up to bondage. If the truth that you know makes you free, then you have to understand something. The antithesis of that must be true as well. The lie brings bondage. As long as you hold fast to truth, there's freedom for you. When you decide to go uh, the other way and fall for the lie, then there's only bondage for you. And so I need you to please consider that. For those of you listening, there is no truth to what your, your enemy comes at you with. He, he, it all falls apart. It's all flimsy. I know it looks bad. I know it sounds bad sometimes, but there is no truth to what he's saying. Another one of my favorite uh, principles, and this is not all inclusive with the typical principle. I just wanted to give you a couple of those that you could see them um, if you get a chance. Also, remember, Nebuchadnezzar is a picture of the Antichrist as well. I think that's in Daniel chapter 3. He built a image that was uh, 60 cubits high, six cubits wide, 
and there were six instruments that were played. And when you heard those six instruments that were played, you were supposed to fall down and worship him. This is something else that the beast will want. He's going to want worship from you. And you see Nebuchadnezzar is also marked with three sixes. So the other uh, principle I wanted to share with you uh, before we get out of here, uh, it is the election principle. The election principle is one of my favorite principles in the Bible. The election principle essentially is this. This is where God reveals a spiritual truth, right? By setting aside the first and establishing the second. Well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. Well, I'll explain it to you. The first in the culture of the Hebrews, if you were the firstborn, you were called the Behor. Uh, the Behor uh, had more rights to their father's vocation, to their father's wealth, uh, whatever the father left over the legacy and all that stuff. It was up to the Behor to carry that on. And since a whole lot of responsibility came with that, when the father did pass, the majority of what the father left behind would go to, to the Behor and the rest of it was split evenly with the other children. The Behor held a special place in the heart, especially if it was a son. He held a special place. There was a status that he had. And sometimes what God would do in the Bible is he would set aside that first and he would establish the second. So the firstborn, Cain, was set aside because his offering was not, I want to say it the right way, because we make speculations about Cain's offering. And we say, well, Cain's offering wasn't accepted because it didn't have blood. Well, there are other offerings in, in Leviticus that do not require blood. If it's a sin offering, yeah, I get it. If it's a trespass offering, yeah, I get it. It's supposed to have blood. But none of that was laid out. There was no law yet when Cain and Abel were around. Cain brought what he had. He was a tiller of the ground. So even if he brought something that did have blood, he'd have to get it from somewhere else, someone else, because he didn't have anything. Does that, I hope that makes sense to you. We speculate that that's the reason his offering was not accepted. But in Hebrews, I believe it's in chapter 11, it says, by faith, Abel offered up a more perfect sacrifice. I'd rather go with what the scripture says. And it says that by faith, Abel did this. Abel didn't do this out of religious duty or anything like that. He did it out of faith and his faith was acceptable to God. So that leads me to believe that Cain did not necessarily do it out of faith, regardless of whether it had blood or anything like that, that's speculation. But we do know Abel's was accepted because of faith and Cain's was rejected. So Abel was established. He's the second born. Cain was pushed to the side. We also see this with Jacob and Esau. We mentioned them a little bit earlier. Esau was pushed to the side. Jacob was established. We see this with Adam. There's a first Adam who was pushed to the side, and there's a last Adam who was Jesus. He was the one that was established. There's a Old Testament pushed to the side, and then there's a New Testament. This is the one that's established. So you can see kind of how this election principle works, and you see it over and over and over in Scripture. One of my favorite places to point this out, and this is how it relates to you and I, is that you have a guy in John chapter 11 
whose name was Lazarus, and Lazarus died. And let me say it the right way. He got sick first. Then Jesus stayed where he was for two more days after he heard that Lazarus was sick. And then Jesus finally leaves after two days, and, and Lazarus was already dead. He even told the disciples, Lazarus is dead. He said, and, and for your sakes, for your sake, I'm glad that I was not there that you may believe. He said, now, nevertheless, we're still going to go to him. But this is, this is basically what Jesus is saying. This is going to be pretty cool for y'all. It's going to be really cool for y'all to see this. He already knows what's going to happen. He goes to Bethany. Bethany means the house of misery. He tells the people, he says, show me where you laid him. Then when he, they showed him where he laid him, he said, roll away the stone. They rolled away the stone. And it's interesting that the things he told them to do, he could have done himself. But God understands that we were never meant to work for him. We were always meant to work with him. So that means that you have a part to do and God has a part to do. Your part is normally going to be the practical thing to do. God's part is normally going to be the miraculous thing to do. And so both of us have a part. God has his part. We have our part. In fact, when Lazarus finally came out, he said, loose him and let him go. There was something else they could do. And so they took part in the miracle. Um, now, some of them might not have seen it that way, but they did take part in the miracle. Lazarus is restored. I think when you get to John chapter 12, they said that the people came to Bethany and they wanted to see Jesus, but not only Jesus, they said they wanted to see Lazarus who was raised from the dead. And now, once you get to this point, you had the Pharisees who were plotting to kill Lazarus and Jesus. And they said, look, we got to kill Lazarus because some people might believe according to his account. Now, Jesus did things in a way that really irritated the Pharisees. I'm not worried about the Sadducees right now because the Sadducees were cr completely corrupt. The Pharisees were not corrupt like you think they were. The, the Pharisees and the Sadducees were completely different. In fact, the Pharisees had a, a huge dedication to what the text says. Their problem was they didn't have it in context. It's one thing. And they didn't have compassion for people who didn't have the same heart as them. In fact, if we had half the dedication to the text that the Pharisees had, plus the compassion of Christ that lives on the inside of us, we could turn this world completely upside down. But that would be a different podcast. The people came to see Lazarus, and they came to see Jesus. And the Pharisees said, we have to kill them both. And because Jesus did things that were not lawful in the eyes of the Pharisees, I could understand why the Pharisees would want to do away with Jesus. Now, I want to say this. You might have had some corrupt Pharisees who wanted to kill Jesus, but at large, I don't believe the Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus. Not at large. I believe you had some corrupt ones here and there. Remember, I told you the Pharisees were completely dedicated to the text. And one of the things in the text, it says, thou shalt not murder. And so I don't believe that they really, as a whole, wanted to kill Jesus. They did want to silence him. They wanted to get rid of him. But killing him 
I don't believe was in their heart to do. In fact, Jesus walked with them for three years in his ministry, going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth with them. But then he shows up in Jerusalem for one week with the Sadducees and he comes up dead. So that lets you know who really wanted to kill Jesus. It should let you know that. I digress. I can understand why they wanted to get rid of Jesus, but what did Lazarus do? When you go back and you look at the story, Lazarus didn't do anything. Only thing Lazarus did was he got sick and he died. Lazarus didn't even ask to be raised from the dead. He got sick and he died. That was it. And when I'm looking at this and you, and you peel yourself back and you start to think about it and you start to ask questions, which I advise everybody to do when you're studying the word of God is ask questions. Take your time, slow down and ask questions. What did Lazarus do? Why are they trying to kill Lazarus? Well, it says here, because of the account, his testimony, people might also believe. But is that enough to kill him? To kill him? Was anybody trying to kill him before he died? No, nobody was looking for Lazarus to kill him before he died. It was only after he was raised from the dead that somebody wanted to kill him now. What am I trying to tell you? I'm simply trying to tell you this. This is the election principle at work here again. It wasn't Lazarus' first life that people had a problem with. It was the new life that Lazarus had that people had a problem with. And friends and brothers and sisters, this is us in a nutshell. You weren't on the enemy's radar with your old life. But now that you picked up this new life, your old life is pushed to the side. All old things have passed away and behold, all things have become new. This new life is established. And in this new life, now you become a problem to the kingdom of darkness. Nobody was looking to do anything to you in that old life. But now your new life is so important. In this new life, you have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. And there's no more precious of a price that could have been paid for your redemption. And now because you have this new life, you have to go out into this world and you have to make a difference. You don't just get born again just to go to heaven. You get born again to make a difference. And friends, I would challenge you to remember this and on a day-to-day -day basis, do your best to make a difference in this world. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for tuning in. And I hope that we find you again here with us next time under the fig tree.